if you go into the arena, if you go into that space to play, it is like going into the Colosseum, you're a gladiator and you've got to have your armour up because there are people who are indifferent to your well-being. Wherever you are in the world, you can turn it on, you can get a snapshot of who's around, you know, a sense of community or scene. These apps have been used as a way to target gay people and do like hate crimes on them. It's quite sad, actually. For digitally native generations, finding a partner on an app may be the only way some of us have ever dated. This is maybe even more the case for queer young people. For me, the first boy I ever met was on Tinder, and I was like 16. We never actually made it to our Luna Park date, but still, it was the first time I felt seen as a young gay person, and the first time I saw other people who could like me back. I'm Josh Green, and on this episode of Think Digital Futures, we're looking at dating apps, specifically the queer experience of dating apps. How is the way LGBTQI plus people use apps, like Grindr for example, changing how we date? Beyond what that means for finding a partner or a hookup, what does it mean for queer community overall? These apps are massive too, by the way. They're on track to be a $51 million industry by 2024. And just quickly, a language warning. This episode has a little bit of swearing in it. A lot of it is based on the fact that we're sexually liberated so late in life. So we feel like, I, I don't know, I read somewhere that it's kind of like we're all in high school again and we're kind of reliving that that moment in our lives that we wouldn't have been able to back then. So um, there's that very immature mindset that a lot of people go through and that's how I perceive it, I guess. This is Eric. And he's telling me about what it is about being gay that makes using these apps different from maybe a straight person's experience. Eric, yeah, sure. Tell me, how do you fit into this story of mine? Well, we were, I guess, matches on on Tinder. Uh, I I specifically remember we went on a first date to Beresford. Um, I was nervous as fuck. I don't know if you can swear on this, but um, nervous as fuck because I always am. Uh, regardless of the situation. And yeah, no, like, we hit it off, I think, right? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, went on a couple of dates. And then <laughs> Mardi Gras came up. <laughs> yeah, you disappeared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things um, didn't really end that well between me and Eric, but that was years ago now. I remember on our first date, Eric told me about this project he'd done on sexual racism in the gay community on dating apps. He's seen this kind of thing firsthand as a Filipino man. I guess being Asian, you'd see things um, that usually wouldn't happen if you were, like, white, I guess. You definitely have to keep an eye out and you've got to try to stay ahead or one step ahead of someone and try to perceive what they're looking for. Um, It's always a red flag when you are talking to someone, you get along with them and you look on their Instagram or their their social media and you see that they've always been with Asians or a certain type. You're like, oh, I'm just a number in this. So it's always like, oh, after experiencing it like a fair few times, you're just like, oh, I don't really want to be, I don't really want to fall into that trap again. 
someone else on Tinder told me about a negative experience he had as a person of colour on the apps. Let's call him John. After already agreeing to be exclusive with the guy, they went to a party together, and everyone there was white. John didn't feel comfortable there, and the next day, his new boyfriend texted to say it was over, that they couldn't enjoy the same lifestyle. John read this as about being from a different culture. He says after four and a half years on Tinder, his experiences are just bad in general. And he says that's maybe because he uses them too seriously. I guess it's also about how they talk to you. Um, It's certain language and it's certain, like, nuances that they say. It's like, oh, obviously they'll ask you where you're from, which is, I guess, a normal question. But it's also followed up by, oh, I love the Philippines, or I... And they proceed to speak a broken version of your dialect, and you're like, oh, that's not fun, that's not cute. The other weird racist thing you see on these apps is a reduction of a group to a food type, where someone may say no rice in their profile to indicate that they don't want to date Asian people. It's not a thing that they choose to acknowledge. I guess listing your ethnicity is probably the most, like, the furthest that they address into someone's, like, ethnicity and, like, racism. I don't think even racism is even, like, a question or a thing, a concept that they take into consideration. It's the users who who create language um, to incite that as well. Like terms like rice queen and associating certain ethnicities with like foods and it, it's, it's crazy. So I guess what they should do is they should ban those words and um, kind of block it. That's the extent that I would see happening. If you're getting lost at all here, let me clear up how these apps are used. Tinder is the classic. It's mainly used for finding a relationship, at least in my experience. Straight people often tell me Tinder is where they go for a hookup. I suppose queer men and masked people mainly have Grindr for that, where you can be a bit more anonymous. Other apps, like Hinge and Bumble, cater to dating. And then there are apps for more niche communities, like Scruff for bears, or Jacked, which is meant to be a safer place for queer people of colour. I'm Damien, I'm 51, I identify as a cis male and gay. I met Damien on Grindr. I use Grindr and Scruff. He responded to my call out and he told me about his experiences. It allows me to know who's gay in, you know, the vicinity. So that, like that in itself is like an amazing, an amazing thing. You know, it's, it's like telepathy. But Damien certainly doesn't think these apps are perfect either. Yeah, some hot guys who I have hooked up with where they've actually just lamented the miserableness of Grindr. Mm. And, but I think, I think also it's all, like everything in life, it's moderation. Like a glass of wine at the end of the day can be really nice. Two bottles of wine at the end of the day, every day you'll, you'll get sick. You know, it's going to be miserable. And, you know, Grindr too, I think in moderation. So I think how you use it, keeping it kind of, in perspective, so it's in balance with a, with a good life. That's really important. In fact, Damien tells me his experience using the apps is also, well, bad. And, and look, if I were 25, I think I'd probably, I think I might well love Grindr. 
But then what's interesting for me is that when I meet people who are 25 and they tell me what they experience with Grindr, I don't hear people who say they love it. I hear people who complain about it, who say that it causes great frustration, suffering. Yeah, they get sex and pleasure. But, you know, in terms of that issue, there's a quote by Jermaine Greer that I just read in, in an interview with her. She was just saying that the mistake that she felt that her generation made in the 60s and the 70s is that they mistook pleasure for joy. And I feel like that same mistake is being repeated in this generation because there aren't a lot of avenues outside of apps because they're so ubiquitous. I guess there's a lack of opportunity for for men to connect with one another and develop joyful kind of friendship relationships. Like there is a very transactional aspect to meeting someone through Grindr. It seems like it's liberating. It seems like it creates this amazing opportunity, but simultaneously, and, and it does create this opportunity for, you know, hookups, but simultaneously it does actually prevent random connection from happening. And random connection in life is just this amazing thing. One of Damien's biggest critiques of the apps, and he talks predominantly about Grindr, is how the way we're presented on these apps, and so how we're perceived, is removed from reality, in a sense. I see a a simulation of who you are. I actually do not see who you are because I'm not picking up on all of the subtle cues that human beings convey to each other. And the result is you get a performance of an aspect of a human. So you don't get a full human being through these apps. And, And you meet people through the apps who complain about that lack of richness. Because this technology is still relatively new to society, we're still grappling with the implications of it. And uh, I think it's a, it's a learning process. It's actually quite a brutalizing experience. You know, if you're feeling fragile, if you're feeling in need of love, I think if you were to go onto Grindr and seek that, you're not going to find it and you will suffer. So age probably has something to do with it as well. Negative as some of Eric's experiences using the apps may have been, he still sees some positives, ones that Damien doesn't. Yeah, as a kid who didn't necessarily grow up out, um, you definitely create a bond and a yeah a community through that, um, and you take it wherever you can. I, I have met a lot of people who I still talk to to this day, so I, I can't really fault it in in that so it's how you make the experience if you're there to just hook up and you hook up I guess you've fulfilled your your need and the thing for Eric is this is the only kind of dating he knows I asked him if he had ever dated anyone he didn't meet on an app no not really these apps definitely make things a lot more easier but yeah no definitely haven't dated offline because I it is that safety thing where it's like I'm also like as cliche as it is like I'm quite an awkward person, so I can't really pick up on certain social cues. <laughs> but yeah, I'd r- much rather make the process easier and then get to the- know them as people in person after we've developed a connection on those apps. Um, I've been interested in dating and hookup apps over a number of research projects, actually. It, it has sort of come up at times when it wasn't the focus. Paul Byron is a postdoctoral researcher at UTS in the School of Communication, 
looking at digital and social media. My initial research in dating apps was actually on a project around sexting and young people in Australia. And there was a lot of, obviously, education and public campaigns around sexting for teenagers. But it was really heterosexual and it was very much about girls, young heterosexual girls um, and the risks that they were facing. So probably almost 10 years ago now, we thought, well, what if we take that discussion into a queer space? Because image sharing and that form of intimacy is, is you might say, quite normalised on places like Grindr. And users of Grindr still being young. I think for a lot of queer young people, dating apps offer a space that is different to a lot of other social media spaces that they're using in in that everyone there is is LGBTQ+, or queer-affiliated in, in some sense. A lot of people I've interviewed over the years talk about moving to cities and jumping on Grindr and then finding people to hook up with, but also friends, or, or both. And, and moving, I guess, hooking up and then becoming friends with that person was, is a common experience as well. So it offers um, access to community, in a way, um, for some people, not, not all people. And it also offers insight into being queer and how a whole bunch of queer people present themselves, talk about themselves and what they want and, you know, who's available to, to connect with. This is kind of like my experience and Eric's as well, finding community on dating apps. They make gay visible. It wasn't until I used Tinder that I could ever see other queer people around me. Well, certainly in the research, similar to your experience, we've had a lot of people talk about not using dating apps when they were teenagers or young, but going back home to the country or, or the suburb, wherever, and turning on a geolocative app and going, OK, there's actually heaps of queer people around here. And all that time as a teenager, I thought I was the only one. So people do express a revisionist account of, of, of their teen years as, you know, maybe I wasn't the only one in, in, in the area after all, and getting some comfort from that as well. Or maybe just feeling not so alone, even though you're not connecting with all those people and, and hanging out with them, you're kind of going, oh, okay, there's, there's a, this is a queer space. And I think that's really important. And that's what particularly geolocative apps offer that other social media doesn't necessarily. What are we talking about when, when we're saying queer community? That's a really great question. I, I struggle a bit with the idea of queer community because, I mean, as most of us in the so-called community know, there's, you know, it's not always a safe and easy and comfortable place for everyone. We know that, for example, a lot of trans people, a lot of people of colour have, have not had an easy time being part of this so-called community. But we know that some of those people have, have smaller communities that are safer. So the idea that there's a, there's a sort of whole umbrella, the LGBTQAI plus community, is, is always fraught. But it's, it's also a nice thing to aim for, that we, you know, everyone can share that space in a, in a safe and comfortable way. I, in my research, I've really backed away from the term community, but I'm kind of coming back there now, actually, because I think that it has some value. Maybe if it is just a kind of wish or end goal space, 
But also why I'm coming back to it is people use that term all the time. So everyone I'm interviewing at the moment says the community. Um, what people mean by that I think really varies, but I think it's not a it's not a, a term we should abandon. But I think yeah, I think there's some interesting tensions there that dating apps have have kind of contributed to in a way because certainly in that research people did talk about the community a lot. But not just contained in the apps, but how the apps are connected to real world spaces as well. So we had a lot of participants talk about seeing someone at parties, events, and and kind of being into someone, and then they pop up on Tinder, and there's a profile, and it says whether they're single or or not, or and what they're into maybe, and so people talked about that plus the real life shared space kind of contributing to. Being able to approach that person, or being able to sort of see whether you might fit into that person's life, so all the kinds of、um, hesitations and, and concerns there.、Um, for some people, the apps are kind of, you know, helping get more information on someone. So I think the overlaying of the digital and non-digital is, is really important, and perhaps more so, I think I would say in in queer communities. Than in in the straight world, unless there are certain kind of scenes that someone's part of, you don't tend to sort of have that cross paths thing happening a lot. Paul says these apps progressively become more inclusive spaces for all people, such as the way in which some allow you to set and change your gender and pronouns. But then you always get people going. Well, actually, I've figured out a system in the old ways to kind of have more scope than that. Certainly, a lot of trans non-binary people I've spoken to using something like Grinder have not enjoyed that. There seems to be a lot of, I guess you could say, homonormative cis white gay man space. Even though it's not limited to those people, they seem to have some kind of cultural dominance of that space,、um, which can be, as as many of us know, it can be sort of misogynist,、uh, femme shaming, fat shaming, and more. Racist, of course, as well. And so, a lot of people I've spoken to who don't fit that model of the cis white gay mask, gym bod man feel uncomfortable in Grinder. For some trans and non-binary people who use these apps, finding community and feeling safe can be even more of a challenge. But we did have a person that talked about switching genders on Tinder, but doing it in a way. And this was a non-binary person who dated everyone except straight men, and so they figured out a system to sort of gender switch in ways that they could filter out straight men, but still see straight women and everyone else. The things LGBTQI plus people do on these apps. The way we use them and how we behave on them—it's all playing a role in shaping our communities, if we're using that term. And it fleshes out a bit more about how queer community is being reproduced in the 21st century. What do you think the future of queer community looks like with these apps playing such a prominent role in our lives? I mean, it's a, it's a very big question because 
who knows? We have a whole lot of research coming out, or that's been coming out for a while now, around you know young people now being quite fluid in their gender and sexuality in a way that has you know, never been the case. So I feel like apps will probably adapt to that a bit more. We've seen apps like Tinder, certainly, and even Her, which I think started out as as a queer women's focused app. A lot of people that were using it that I've spoken to talk about it being very trans-friendly. A lot of non-binary people using it, and it kind of carved out. A, however, it did it. It made it a, a safer space than Tinder for a lot of people in a sort of queer world. What we think of now as quite sophisticated, digitally mediated uh, platforms, such as say Grinder, maybe it's still just a the equivalent of a telegraph in terms of how it reduces communication to the most essential basic parts and it misses all of the multifaceted complexity and wonder and beauty that every human being has and i think one of the sad things and one of the risks perhaps and maybe i'm being romantic in saying this but i think if we live in a society where we actually think of ourselves as a object a piece of meat something that that we market ourselves to one another and if everyone or the majority of people believe that then where's the wonder and where's the mystery and where's the really delicate beautiful things that you can experience as a human being and share with other human beings and and i think the apps can never in their current form in societies that currently exist can never provide that but you know maybe it doesn't matter you know maybe it's all that just getting a great fuck you know And again, these are businesses. These are wanting people, and they're wanting, you know, the biggest user group they can get. So I think they're going to become more and more inclusive. But also, they can't control that, as we've seen with Grinder, making itself more and more inclusive. They released a whole bunch of videos. They initiated that after there was some public outcry around transphobia and racism on Grinder. So they released a whole series of videos. They put up sort of ads and information on the app. They added the the pronouns and gender features. All that work they've done, we can look at it and go, well, it's kind of just PR, which is probably true. Or maybe they actually mean it and they want this to be an inclusive space, which is obviously true because they also want people to stay there. But if you speak to trans and non-binary people in that space and and people of color, are they still having a horrible time? I think a lot of them still are. So the PR doesn't necessarily translate into building a safer environment for community and for community to kind of expand. So I think it's a tricky one because I think you've got the business plans of these media companies up against the you know the things we all want and need from these spaces which differ quite widely. So I don't know where it's going to go. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Josh Green. Thanks for your company.